Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 273. Right now, I'm sitting outside on the balcony outside of our Airbnb. There are seagulls. I don't know if you can hear them, but they're everywhere. There's a football game going on. Fam's inside making dinner and all is well. What have we done lately? Well, probably the coolest was we went to the Cliffs of Moher which I don't know, I can't even describe it. These massive cliff faces. And there's a 14-mile trail that traverses like the whole length of the coast. So you can drive up and there's a visitor center at the halfway point. And, you know, it's seven bucks just to park. Um, and a lot of people drive up and they take their pictures. And, and that part of it is mobbed. But the southern end of it, the first half uh, from, from where we started in the south, and the northern part for maybe like the last two hours was desolate. And in the north, there's horses and there's cows. They've closed off part of the trail because it's fallen off into the water and there's all these like warning signs and stuff. And you do have to be super careful, but it is like mesmerizing. Uh, we saw puffins. Uh, we saw this thing that we were calling like updraft where the water hits the coast and it hits the cliff and it just shoots straight up and it mists you like a shower. It is unbelievable. Uh, yeah, if you go to Ireland, you have to do the Cliffs of Moher. So we're in Galway now and we went to uh, the Aran Islands and biked around, but today was all about food. So we started the day, we went to a place called Tartar and what do we have? Of course, we got steak tartare. Uh, we got oysters, scrambled eggs, and pork belly and sourdough. This chicken salad, which was like a, a fried chicken, like a chicken katsu. Uh, unreal. And Tartar is one of three restaurants owned by the guest on today's episode, who is J.P. McMahon. And he's unbelievable, man. Like, uh, I guess he's one of the most well-known chefs in all of Ireland, Michelin starred, uh, making incredible food. He has tartare, he has anyar where we recorded, and that's like a high-end, you know, 12-plus course dinner where you're sitting there for a while. It's just a few tables making really beautiful food. And he also has the Spanish tapas restaurant. So a greatly inspiring chef. Uh, using a lot of ingredients that are that are local to here in Ireland, and he's very knowledgeable about them. But he's also, he's an artist, and he's a writer, and we'll get into all that stuff. I won't, uh, I won't say too much more about what we actually talk about. But this was a real pleasure, and it was great to sit in, in his restaurant and be hosted there. And while we were waiting for him, we got to see uh, the chef starting to prep for the dinner meal, and that was really cool to watch too. Uh, so thanks, JP. Thanks, Abigail, for setting this up um, and for hosting us. And we had a great time. We were playing with his dog and everything. So amazing guy. Uh, you can go to the notes for this episode, and I'll have a link to his Instagram, which is really active. I, I re recommend you give him a follow. Uh, he's posting all sorts of good stuff. And I'll have a link to uh, his Eat Galway site, which sort of compiles his three restaurants and his social media and all that stuff. I'll also have a link to my Patreon account. That's where you can give monthly. It's a subscription-based service and get cool things like shirts and stickers and zines, postcards from the road. Uh, I'm on the road now. Everything to do with this podcast is fully funded by me straight out of my pocket. I don't make profit. So um, yeah, that stuff's helpful. Or if you hear a cool episode, just tell a friend. That's always awesome. All right, I'm going to stop blabbing and uh, I'll say enjoy this episode with JP. Yeah, he's very friendly, so he's, uh, he's only two. Only two? Yeah, so, and he sleeps in my daughter's bedroom, so he's like literally, I don't, he's not really kind of one to go outside in the rain. He's very, uh, kind of likes his comforts. Yeah, so. Well, I, I didn't think to ask this, but what does a, a chef like yourself feed his dog? Um, oh, sometimes he eats lobsters. <laughs> no. uh, now, of course, not the not the flesh. Um, the the he 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 eat the odd lobster head, but um, he's probably better fed than most. Like he get all the lamb off cuts every night. Really? Yeah, and then sometimes he won't uh, he won't eat his own food. Uh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so you give him the dry food, and he um, 
he just goes, "What do you, you give me this stuff for?" Yeah. Uh, so uh, better fit than most people, then, huh? Yeah, but he like he comes. Uh, I I got him during COVID, and I suppose it was the. I mean, a lot of people had babies during COVID, and it was two years where you had a bit of time. And uh, I was always thinking about having a dog. And uh, my friends uh, had five pups, and they just said, "Do you want a dog?" And I didn't even check with the family. I just got a dog and uh, brought him home. And so it was good. I mean, in retrospect, because um, because when they're under a year, you kind of have to. You can't just leave them by themselves. So mm. It would have been difficult in in the in regular regular time to get one because I'm, I'm working at night. And but I mean, now it's fine. I can leave them at home. He's down during the day when I'm here, and then when I do service, I just drop him home. So, how bad did things get here? Because in New York, where we live, like referring to COVID, yeah. you know, obviously it was crippling to the restaurant industry. But then there were also some people who were able to get really creative and do pop-ups and home deliveries and all sorts yeah, of stuff. It was, it was good and bad. I mean, I suppose, um, like it was, it was. A, I suppose it was like a little. It was like a trauma initially. It was like a blunt force. Everything just stopped, like mm. restaurants closed in around March, April. And, and it took us a while to kind of get our heads around what we doing. Um, and we have three restaurants. So here in the year, which is our missions, our restaurant didn't open at all. A lot of our, our clientele are American. And I was uh, thinking, yeah. we can't open an ear in this. Um, so an ear remained closed for 18 months. Now in that, we did do, um, uh, we started doing, we do cooking classes anyway. So we started doing on, online classes, but it was actually an American couple who contacted us and said, would you, would you do an online class? So we did an online class over Zoom for two, sent them recipes them, and uh, we, we cooked together. So then we just kind of put a bit of a program together and we, then we did classes for, I don't know, making ramen or classes for, yeah. we just did everything. And, um, and then someone said, why don't you do a few classes for kids? So we, we did a eight week kids class and we had a, a hundred kids uh, each morning on Saturday and Sunday on Zoom. Holy like crap. hundred people on Zoom is full on. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but we had great fun and everyone was posting pictures and it kind of like, uh, it, was, it was a surreal time because we did one subsequent to COVID and, and there wasn't really that much interest. And mm. it, was, it was very weird. It was like this particular time and place that, that forced everyone online. And, and, and that was where you, you kind of did your space. And of course we did takeaway boxes from our cafe yeah. Tartare on the weekends, but they were more just uh, to keep everyone busy because you do doing 40 boxes um, and doing 40 people in a restaurant, like it's all doing 40 boxes is like doing 80 people, you know, and it, it, it took a lot to put the boxes together. And, and again, it was fun. We did videos and that, but um, it was, uh, it, it certainly was difficult. And there were times when I suppose um, when the when the waves were very bad, and um, that I really didn't know was this place ever going to open again? Would 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 Tartar go? I mean, the Cava or Tapas Bar wasn't working for takeaway. The, on the menu was yeah. just designed to eat in, and we did it a few times, and people loved it. But we just knew that it wasn't working, like fried squid in a little takeaway <laughs> yeah, box, yeah. and then someone's eating it an hour later, and you're going, this isn't, and they're like, oh, that was the best squid I ever had. And you're like, it wasn't the best squid you ever had in your life. They're your like, clientele no, no, no. might be stoners. Yeah, 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 they're like, no, 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 it's great, I loved it. And they're like, no, 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 it wasn't good. And they're like, you need to keep open. Uh, so, um, yeah, it, it was a weird time, you know, and it's it's it, it's weird how, um, how you're kind of, um, your memory tricks you into, like I feel when we're back now, it's almost that we we might maybe we got ten percent learnings or something. Mm. Like a lot of the stuff we did that we said, oh, do you know it'd be great if we, we had uh, no menus anymore. We were just paperless because no one wanted to touch anything. Right. We, we, over in Tartar, we we did um, we had QR codes. Like everyone all around the world was having menus online. And the minute COVID finished, everyone was like, "Where's your menu?" Yeah. And you're going, "Oh, we have a QR code now." And they're like, "No, no, 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 I don't want a menu." And uh, so it's it's weird. Something stuck. Um, like the way I suppose you can still do the odd Zoom, and but I, I feel yeah that the the kind of desire to meet in person and the desire to get out and um, even even this you know, my my partner works in, uh, at concerts um, doing oh. the food in in concerts and uh, like the demand for people to 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 get out and she just did a festival at Kaleidoscope in uh, in Dublin and um, she was saying like it was like the the the, the 
the people there, like it was just phenomenal. They like the pressure of like it was like they'd never gone to a concert before mm. in their life. Like she said, like, I think the whole site turned like about a million euro in, in food and everyone was just like, I want, I want, I want. And uh, so yeah, kind of crazy. Uh, and that's still all the 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 stuff that's on up in Marley Park, the chili peppers and Green Day and all these, like it's just like they literally can't get enough and the airports are full yeah yeah, full. yeah. staff and and it's all and people think oh it's it, it, this is this is terrible why is it happening but it's, i suppose it's because everything shut down for two years and then everything just reopened but a lot of staff no more than us um a lot of staff just um faded away or disappeared went to another industry i mean we're not open um uh, Monday and Tuesday over the road because we don't have staff. And it's not that the demand isn't there to feed people. The demand is there. But we're just kind of constrained at the moment too. And it, so it's a weird circumstance. You've like inflation, you've like cost stuff going up. At the same time, you've loads of people, like one half of society um, almost became richer in the pandemic. Like, um, oh, and richer is probably, it's not a negative connotation, but people who worked in tech, Worked it like just regular people, but they they didn't they could they couldn't spend their wages, and so you had on one hand you had hospitality just kind of like hand to mouth, um just getting whatever payment you got and really just trying. But on the other hand, you got people who were working in uh, tech jobs or for Vodafone or IBM, and they were just going, okay, I can't spend my I can't spend my wages, and so it's kind of weird. It kind of split the the country into two economies, and and Ireland is probably. Um, uh, not worse off is the wrong word, but Ireland is, is 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 very much separated along the line. We have so much foreign direct investment from American companies, which is great because it, we have Google and Facebook and Hewlett Packard, um, and uh, of everyone. And um, but at the same time, we have a like like ourselves, like a kind of industry of indigenous SMEs. And I think that what happened was that divide grew during the pandemic because you know, the other really? one hand. That our economy did not stop on that side. Like we have a massive pharmaceutical in, side that I didn't even know, I didn't even know we had, and actually we came out better off in the pandemic, which sounds bizarre. We as a country, even though if you ask people, they would say, "No, that was a horrible time." Yeah, and so it doesn't make sense when you go, "Oh no, the country uh, had a great time in exports, selling whatever they sell." I don't know what they sell the, in pharmaceutical, probably making. PPE gear or... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I think a lot of that sounds pretty spot on to what's and, happening and, in the States. And yeah, may, and maybe so as well, because I suppose, yeah, it's just, uh, it is nuts, you know, and um, and it's kind of like, the, I, I think there'll be a kind of weird legacy of that, you know, and there are, my friend closed her two, her two businesses in Galway, she had two, re, two cafe restaurants and she's left the industry now completely and she just said she's gone to, of all things, she's, she says she's doing a degree in... I don't know what what's the proper word like it's not like sex therapist but yeah. I didn't know you could do yeah she's doing a degree on how to talk to people about sex and yeah. which like Irish people can't fucking do at all like really? yeah oh Jesus they're brutal it's our our when you try and talk to any any Irish person about like uh, anything like that, they're like, oh, no, no, it's a self conscious oh, culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I think it's the repressed Catholics uh, yeah, all, okay. Yeah, <laughs> okay. that we uh, we never got rid of. Um and um uh, so yeah, and I, I actually joke about it sometimes. I my my daughter was over; she's thirteen, and her friends in the house last night, and and um, I was at work, and there was her fourteen year old with there with the boyfriend, and I was like, make sure they're not having sex upstairs, and she was like, don't talk to me about those things. She's like, you're not allowed to say that word, and I was like, I just said it. She's like, don't. That's disgusting. And she said that. She's like, no. And I go, like, it's just normal. I'm just saying, yeah, like, I'll be in trouble if, or, if, they're, if they're doing it. She's like, stop it, stop it. <laughs> so it's still, yeah, and even though she's, yeah, I don't know, maybe it's just an Irish thing. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a bar, bizarre. my German friend said, it. isn't it, it's funny how everyone in the, in the, in the, in the, in the gym in Ireland, when they're, when they're come out of the shower, like they're absolutely trying to conceal themselves just in case someone looks at them. And she's like, she's in Germany, they just wander around naked. And um, they're like, what's, what's the problem with Irish people? And I was like, I don't know. See, maybe this is weird to bring up, but in the States, if you're using a public restroom, there's often dividers and here, you're just kind of out there. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. And it's weird. I would say, yeah, I'd say, I, it's just weird. Yeah, weird. We have this weird relationship with yeah bathrooms and showers and things like that. So yeah. Well, let me backtrack and say, first of all, thank you for having me here. 
Um, you're welcome. You're a very busy guy, and you have the attention of much larger outlets than myself, so I appreciate it. No, not at all, not at all. We just ate across the street. Oh, cool. We just ate like a mammoth amount of food, so I don't even know how I'm talking right now. It was Wonderful. amazing, uh, so I appreciate it. Are you from Galway originally? No, I'm from Dublin originally. Okay. Uh, and I grew up in uh, I grew up in Kildare, um, in a town called Maynooth, which was um, a university town, and my, my father taught there. Um, I always joke saying, I like, I mean, a lot of people say it's um, it's where you went to, um, you're from where you went to school, mm. and so then technically I'm from Kildare. But okay. I, I always say like, <laughs> who wants to be from Kildare? <laughs> I don't know what the equivalent is in the states, but I said that once that I was doing a demo and I I was literally hounded, I was booed. Because it, like, it's very rural, or yeah, it's it's not it's. There are a lot of horses in Kildare, okay. um, but it's it's look it's it's also probably a bit posher than Dublin. So maybe a lot of people would. I think my older brother tells tells people he's from he's from Kildare. He's more Dublin than me, um, but um, I don't know. I always I mean spiritually is the wrong word, but um, I, I've always kind of em, um, empathised with um, the. With the, the kind of idea of Dublin, I suppose because I love literature so much, and I love so all of the writers that I I suppose like, like Joyce and Beckett and different things. I mean, for me, the, that uh, that idea of Dublin. So it's just mm. I, I I love that that kind of cultural idea, and I just when I was thinking about Kildare and culture, and it's like if anyone listens to this, I was like I do apologise to the people <laughs> of Kildare, and um, I just couldn't think of something. I was like, yeah, there's horses and. Yeah, uh, something else. But anyway, um, I'm sure there are a few writers from Kildare. But it has a beautiful two Michelin star restaurant now, um, which is very like uh, the same philosophy of veneer I uh, call Amsher. And um, so it's, uh, it is coming up in the world. But uh, maybe when 10 years, I'll tell people I'm from Kildare. And I'll go, do you know, I was a, I was a closet Kildare person okay. for 20, 30 years. And I was trying to be from Dublin. But um uh, I suppose it's kind of like that kind of self self fashioning, you know, when you're, when you're, when you you frame yourself over the years, and you and uh, when you tell people things and they react to you, that you uh, you kind of become that that person, you know. What were you getting into when you were young, and was was food ever on the table? Yeah, food food was there or thereabouts from probably ten or eleven on, and um, I, I studied home economics in in. Um, in school because it was that or woodwork and I, I had a, I had asthma and um, I, I had to do home economics so I kind of got into cooking that that way. I mean, I, my father tells me I was always interested in it, um, even for my grandparents. And um, when I was 15, I, um, I actually nearly left school. I did my junior cert um, and then I, 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 I worked for a summer as a chef and I was thinking, oh yeah, maybe I'll just leave school and be a chef. And I applied to a lot of places and for the first uh, month or two in um, in fifth year, um, I, I actually was working and then I um, I actually got let go and they told me I was useless, and uh, which Why? is funny. Oh, they just weren't happy with my performance. I was 15, yeah. I don't know what I did wrong. Um, they just said it wasn't working out. Um, <laughs> that's why I would go back to them now and say it didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Look at me now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's, um, it's like John Lennon when he, when he got that, did he do it, was it his aunt? And she used to say, you'll never get anywhere playing that guitar. Uh-huh. And then for her birthday, he got her a little, um, a little uh, statue of him with a guitar and at the bottom it said you'll never get out oh, of a guitar um, so <laughs> yeah and then so I went back to school and I did my leaving and I, I didn't actually cook then until um, I moved to Galway and I suppose I needed a job and um, I was the kind of usual distracted late teen into music and literature and poetry and um Tried to live in France, uh, went over there thinking I could just be a bohemian poet, and yeah, that didn't work out too well. Uh, <laughs> I uh, and yeah, then I ended up in in Galway in '99. I took a job as a as a KP in the restaurant, um, and then a position uh, for a chef came up, and I said, "Oh yeah, I can cook," and um, and that's how I kind of started to get back into it, um, and that was what 1920. Um, but I'd kind of always liked liked food and, and the experience of food. I suppose for me it was. It um it was a it was a site of of um of difference. Do you know, mm. I mean, it's like a, a kind of a 
um, an establishing factor, you know, that, that, that separates you from other people. And I, I don't know why food attracted me in that way. Like when, when, I, when I looked at um, Italian food or Spanish food or French food, or, and then you got into it, it was, it's like a language, you know, and then you can speak that language and uh, it, uh, it makes you different mm. to, to and, and where I grew up in Manute was not a big foodie town or my, uh, we weren't a big foodie house so I suppose it was a way to um, uh, to mark out my identity and I remember actually having um, uh, and I've told this story a few times this kind of having this moment this epiphany moment in in Tipperary sometime in the, in the 80s where I had um, a spaghetti bolognese and like mm-hmm. it sounds like the most Hondrum thing now when I said this to kids they're like oh my god you're so old like they're like that was that was exciting back in your day and um, so I I remember we were all out we're all on holidays and everyone was having burgers and chips and for whatever reason I said uh, I'm going to have the spaghetti bolognese and my mother was like oh no you're not going to like that because we had never had pasta up to that point in our house or my parent, my grandparents hadn't and I ate it and I was like wow this is this is kind of cool and, and, and that's one moment it's not the moment but it's one moment along the spectrum of moments where um where i decided or realized yeah food is actually um a bigger thing than just eating because mm. most of the time for me growing up food was eating you ate food when you were hungry it was a time like breakfast dinner lunch you ate sweets when you wanted sugar or that kind of uh that kind of rush but other than that food was very um utilitarian you know mm. It's funny that you say spaghetti bolognese. When you travel uh, to Southeast Asia and you go to a place and you have like your American option, it's always oh, yeah. spaghetti bolognese and it's always awful. I know this, <laughs> the crimes against spaghetti bolognese are, are, are massive in, the, in this world. And uh, I always tell people, I hope that's my last meal. I hope I have a nice bowl of spaghetti bolognese. And I still make it. One daughter eats spaghetti bolognese and the other daughter does not. And uh, But I still, it's... Um, yeah, like it's it's it, it's very. I mean, you could. I'm sure you could write a whole book on it, and and the way it's traveled around the world as an mm. American option. That's interesting. That, it's not even a. It's like a. It's not even an Italian dish per se because they don't put spaghetti with ragu and they put tagliatelle with ragu and all these things. And and on the one side, I hate when you get bad versions of it, but I hate when you get crazy Italians say, "Oh, it's not a real dish." And you're like, well, "What do you mean? It's from not Bologna, real. right?" Yeah, there's yeah. not a real dish. And they're like, "Oh, what's well, what's a real dish? Oh, it's a real dish is from my region." And you're going, "Well, why is it more real from your region?" And and we have the same problem with the Spanish people who come into Cava and they say. Like, who's the chef? And I go, it's me. And they go, uh, oh, you're not Spanish. And I go, no. And they go, oh, is it you, how, did you, how did you learn to cook Spanish food? And I was like, from a book. And they go, you don't learn anything from books. And I was like, I think a few people would argue against that. <laughs> but, um, and they, they were like, I, I'll show you what my grandmother taught me. And you're like, yeah, no, it's grand. I'm okay. Uh, and of course, I go to Spain every year and learn. But it's, it's weird. Sometimes, um, particularly european countries um and i don't even know if you get this in the states um where because of the cosmopolitan nature of it and ireland as an island that um like places like france spain italy they're really protective Mm. of their of their food heritage and 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 we're only acquiring that now you know and um and they get really passionate and argue about like what's the real version of their tortilla? And you, you wouldn't get three Irish people arguing over the, the real version of Irish stew. Maybe at an academic conference, does it have onions or does it have potatoes or do you put, how do you, at stage? But this is like regular Spanish people arguing over oh, yeah. how to make a tortilla. We get that. It lives in like Yelp reviews, you know, especially in New York. You'll go to a Korean restaurant, read it, and you know, and you know, Korean expats and immigrants are yeah. like, this is not like at home. Well, you you're, know, you're not at home. You're in Flushing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you're not at home. Yeah. Like, look outside, it's raining. I was going, is, is it sunny? Is anyone walking in sandals? No, you're not in Spain. I was like, uh, but, I, but at the same time, I appreciate it and I love that passion. Mm. But uh, sometimes it off, it's often, it often stifles um, creativity, you know, mm. and on the one side, you have to be respectful towards tradition, but on the other side, you have to be creative and you don't want to end up being 
too respectful to, tra- to tradition, but you also want to you don't want to end up being too creative because mm-hmm. there, there's a kind of there's a kind of perfect tension that uh, holds them in place. And I remember seeing um, uh, Rennie Rizzepi talking to a sushi master and uh, who who was probably in his 80s or 90s who always did the same thing, mm. never changed. And this was the way. And he was saying, "Do you ever get bored? Or like, do you ever? How does creativity and uh, fit into your 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 mindset?" But he's like saying, "Well, the repetition of the the thing is is always different, and that's mm. your, that's how you're being creative." But at the same time, um, I think when you become too creative, when and then you're at the kind of helm of the the avant-garde in food and the likes of El Bulli and uh, Noma now, and like it's just bursting with creativity. And then where does it go? Like it's it's it, it, if you don't have a have a foundation, like it becomes creative and creative and creative, and then eventually it it kind of self implodes. Mm. And uh, and I suppose that's the. The, um, the 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 that's the worry, in, and I suppose for me it's it's trying to find a, a middle ground, in those in those uh, between those two things where you can appreciate tradition, but at the same time adapt it a little, mm. and not to the point where you're appropriating someone's culture, but at the same time you're 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 learning from it because that's what happens with food anyway. I mean whether whether you want it or not, food will. Um, Food will move and travel. You cannot stop. No more than you just said about Korean restaurants in New York. Like food follows people and mm. people move. And so you cannot stop um, food traveling, you know. Mm. And um, so that's, uh, and that's something I realized when I wrote the, the Irish cookbook that I had this idea of Irish food as being a food from Ireland. But really what it was, was Irish food is a summation of the, what people ate on this island for 10,000 years. And people came from everywhere. Vikings and Nordics and Celts and like um, like uh, North Africans and loads of different co- and of course some are major and some are minor but you, you you can't argue is an Italian person who lives here for 40 years who's making making food it's not Italian food anymore mm. and people would say well it's not Irish food either and then so it's like we have very uh, poor words to describe some of these things. I don't mean to contradict that point, and I'm going to try to articulate this correctly, but there are pockets of like Irish-American communities in the United States, obviously, especially in New York and in Brooklyn where we live. But I think collectively as a nation, if you said something like, you know, what is Irish cuisine? People yeah. would be like, oh, corned beef and cabbage, because yeah, that's like yeah. what they have on St. Paddy's Day with their, with their green beer. Um, so if someone was to pose that to you, like what are the ubiquitous flavors or ingredients or dishes of Ireland? Like, how would you answer that? Like, I suppose I would plead the fifth. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say that's a very difficult question. And, um, and like, there, there's this book here, which I'm sure you've seen, has 480 recipes. And it's uh, a tome of thing on, that was, that's for me, that's what Irish food is. And it is a combination of, like we just open a random page and it's dingle pies. These uh, are mutton pies that originally the pie came from North England and then um, people in Kerry started to adapt it and there was lamb and then mm. they would make these things. It, there is weird stuff like toad in the hole, which is like, yeah, your weird battered sausages. Um, but at the same time, I suppose for me, and have, having been in a near... Uh, 10 or um, 10 or 11 years there's also um, uh, stuff like monkfish and uh, like uh, mullet and like loads of oysters and Mm. sea lettuce and wild herbs and like so what I tried to do in the book was I actually tried to do it like to take different categories and say rather than saying well what is the ultimate foods whether there's corned beef and cabbage or lamb stew or I was like what so in, in, the, in the category of, say, when you look at the contents, then that's what I started with. I started with like, okay, vegetables, shellfish, freshwater fish. And then I started to look through older recipe books to, for um, commonality and saying, okay, this, this is like, this comes up a lot. And, uh, and I suppose what, what's surprising is, is that the idea of Irish food kind of transcends our, that Irish American experience. Um, but also transcends the Irish people's uh, experience because I suppose because we were not, I wouldn't say not that interested in food, but we have a difficult relation with, relationship with food. And that's because I think of the legacy of the famine, mm. the legacy of uh, colonization, 
because unfortunately most of the indigenous Irish people um, were the ones that didn't have the land, didn't have the food. And so you had a kind of Anglo-Irish master that, that controlled food and they would have all of the, the game, venison and duck and all of these things that I put in as well. And for a long time in the 20th century, we had, um, we had a difficult relationship with that because when we became independent, we tried to just disown all of that. Mm. We tried to say, that's not us. So that the last three or 400 years or even 800 in relation to the food experience, that wasn't us. We're really Celts, which is also like nonsense. Um, but um, the, and, and it's only now we're actually going, well, you know, um, uh, Anglo-Irish people who are Protestant that lived in big houses that ate duck and red currant sauce. I mean, they were Irish as well. They were on the island of Ireland. And that is, that is just as much an Irish dish as lamb stew. And people would say, oh no, it's not a tenth of the Irish because they weren't freezing in the small cottage and had nothing to eat. And that's what Irish food is. But it's not. I mean, we, we want Irish food to be certain things. And it ends up always being more than what we want it to be. And even here, I have a friend who's a food historian and what we do here, contemporary Irish food, where we take um, products and then we, we dress them with um, uh, seaweeds or wild herbs or foraged berries or whatever. She would also say, like, that's also slightly mythical because mm. this is this, this never existed. You know, well, it exists now because we do it. But I can't say to her, well, you know, if I put an oyster and sea lettuce together, I'm evoking some sort of Neolithic past because there are two foodstuffs that have been here for 10,000 years but no one sat down and said oh yeah I love a bit of oysters and sea lettuce and then dogged into it and then said yeah it's a good Irish dish uh, so, <laughs> so she would say to me yeah, I'm I'm just as uh, as de uh, deluded as the people who claim that corned beef and cabbage is you know and so mm, it's fair. a weird spectrum and it was funny when I was writing the book they when um, I, I wrote a lot of um traditional recipes, I wrote a lot of contemporary recipes. And then um, then they said to me, um, oh, we should get some recipes from your uh, your own family. And so I had my ass, my parents, my uh, aunts and all that. And we had some like carrot cakes and um, coffee cakes, lots of different um, different cakes. And they were all like, oh, that's really good. Yeah, we'll put them in the book. That's really nice. And, and then I was like, my father's lasagna. And they were like, oh, no, 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 that, that's Italian. And I was like, yeah, but he's been making it for 20 years. And they're like, no, that's not Irish food. And I was like, well, how, how come the... He's Irish. How come the carrot cake is Irish? And they were like, oh, well, that's been made for 60 years. And I was like, well, so if they mix the lasagna for 60 years, will that end up in the book? And they were like, no. And I was like, so, so, so like the, the, the frames we put on things are just imaginary, you know? Mm. And of course they were seriously book publishers. So I wasn't going to go like all ph philosophical on them and tell them that they were, that this was all just a, a joke. But at the end of the day, I was saying, well, there's Japanese, there's contemporary Japanese food in Ireland. And so in 50 years time, that elements of that will have been absorbed into um, Irish food. So if someone writes this book in 50 years time, of course, a lot of the recipes will be the same, but there will be whole, um, a whole uh, host of new recipes, you know, mm. you just can't, you can't stop like things um, folding together, you know? I think traditionally and respectfully uh, in travel circles, I don't know that Ireland's always been known as like a food destination. No, it hasn't at all. It's um, been always been hospitality, uh, landscape and uh, alcohol. Do you, uh, do you notice that changing though? Yeah, definitely. Like since I say over the last 20 years, we opened 2008, um, we opened Cav in 2008 and probably a little bit before that. I mean, you could all say it started in like the 60s with um, Myrtle Allen, this uh, amazing um, chef who, uh, who opened up an Irish restaurant in Paris in the 70s. And um, and uh, and you you think how how is that even possible? I mean, uh, and she did. She was like a, a pioneer. I mean, she passed away a couple of years ago, but she's a pioneer of of Irish food. And there was was pockets of that, very small pockets of uh, of Irish food culture, uh, up until I would say the late nineties, um, and uh, when it kind of mushroomed, you know. And I think um, it's it, it just took a long time. To, to reach kind of public consciousness. And still you could argue like um, uh, we're still a long way off, but mm. I, we're certainly, I think, 
more than halfway there. Like, in, in, like if 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 Michelin stars are anything to go by, um, and they're, like they're 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 not the be all and end all, but they're a good barometer. I mean, when when a near got its Michelin star in 2012, there were seven Michelin stars in Ireland, and now there's 21. Whoa. You know, so like that's that's uh, ten, that's eleven years, and that's so they've they've trebled. So if we keep going this way and say every ten years the stars treble, like then I mean in ten or twenty years time we'll have a, a good foothold. And and it's sometimes it's, sometimes things happen from the top down, and sometimes they happen from the bottom up. But certainly Irish food is a top down thing where you had like leaders and a lot of a lot of women. Um, um, Myrtle Allen, like Theodore Fitzgibbon is an Irish food writer, Maura Laverty, uh, di- different uh, writers and chefs. And then um, uh, and then in the 90s, it becomes quite male-centric in a sense, not, not in a bad way, but there's uh, formative chefs like Ross Lewis and Kevin Thornton and Derry Clark who, who trained in French cooking and then yeah. began to apply that to, to Ireland and to Irish tradition and to adapt and cook better and then I suppose we're the to the generation after that you know and myself and Enda who um, owns Loam uh, Jess Murphy who's originally from New Zealand who owns Kai and I mean the three of us were all kind of hanging around in Galway in 2005-2006 and we all ended up opening restaurants and restaurants that are all still there and we have um, all trained a lot of people who have gone on to do other things or inspired people to go, yeah, this is a possible, this is a viable business. And even like I say, the Hanson Burger, who are two, or two doors down, great, great guys who do burgers, but they have a similar philosophy that we do, but they just do burgers. So they like great meat, great bread, great, you know, and that's what, I mean, once you start to see that and say, that's how you, you build a food culture, you know, because mm. it's not just opening a restaurant because you can open restaurants in, Singapore and import everything, everything from France. It doesn't make Singapore food culture any better, you know. Right. It's and that's and that's and that, that was the case for a long time, where we had restaurants in Dublin that were French restaurants, and they kind of ignored everything that was outside, you know, and uh, and imported a lot of stuff in. I think it's fair to say in the states that we've gone through like a a revival of sorts, or maybe like a greater like re-understanding of food through you know, media, books, yeah. celebrity personalities and things like that. But there was this sort of, um, I was born in 86, so my parents are, are baby boomers. Mm. And there's this post-World War II thing where it's kind of like you were talking about where, where food became utility. Yes. And there was Tupperware and there's TV dinners and there was this sort of like, how can we have a parent working and someone supporting through raising the kids and doing all the stuff at home? And in my opinion, it, like, it detracted a lot from uh, a lot of like the food that I like to eat now that we're now sort of like getting a greater understanding of again or like re-understanding of. Did that also happen here, the sort of like move away from whole animal cooking and more yeah, like utility? Like I, I think the supermarket, which was the first supermarket opened in Ireland in 60... 66 maybe. Um, and again, it was that, it, it, that idea was imported from the States. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which ironically was imported from France uh, originally with the arcades and um, the kind of the original supermarkets. So I mean, uh, it's not that it's 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 all bad, but yeah, definitely that towards a kind of like how can we how can we run a modern society and work and still and still eat and that kind of that whole um, idea of frozen food and ready meals and I mean that's like I I was born in '78, so like that's what I yeah I grew up on as well, you know, mm. and there was still an element of uh, home cooking, where I know in the winter we'd make a lamb stew and we might have fish um, some days, but there was also that mix of potato waffles and beans and uh, crispy pancakes and it's yeah. kind of stuff that you just took out of the freezer and put into the oven and um, it was ready 20 minutes later, you know. And and that's weird. There's a nostalgia for that stuff now that's just the, where people are having it going, geez, this is the coolest thing ever. And we're like going, well, I don't remember this as cool, but... That's the way uh, the way nostalgia works, you know. So then, do you have some sort of philosophy on food and whole animal? And I noticed like uh, most of the bread is like sourdough and fermented. Yeah, we we would in the sense that we would, I, I suppose, think of ourselves as pro that type of of cooking. I mean, there's a whole lamb coming in. I think Baron is delivering it tomorrow, but yeah, I still try and. Uh, um, 
buy as um, uh, as whole as I can, and whether that's working with uh, farmers who may uh, who breed the animals, but it's also working with growers who um, um, who might ring me and say, say I have all of my berries already now, and I'd say, okay, I'll take them all, and so it's a different. So it all that whole kind of whole food philosophy uh, on the spectrum works from like taking the whole pig, but also taking the whole crop. Because I mean, the way in which most restaurants operate is that uh, like, okay, I'll take a kilo and someone else take a kilo. And of course that's the way we, we still um, uh, operate as well. But with some of our suppliers like Steve, I mean, I, I just said, yeah, I'll take all your fruit. And then it's up to me to do something with that. And it's a challenge, you know, mm. and it, it, that's what, that's what me, uh, that's for me what keeps um, food interesting, you know. And sometimes the guys in the kitchen think, see it as, as awkward or more difficult because they want to just box everything off. And if mm. I say, oh, we just ordered a lot of berries that we don't need because they were ready. And then what are we going to do with them and how are we going to use them? And so it's, it's a different way of thinking, you know, and it's, it's kind of a little bit left field or out of the box, but it, I think it's, it, it's good because otherwise you're, you're just, um, you're just ordering from a catalog, you know, and it's like, I want one of this and one of that. And, so it's uh, it's 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 definitely for me makes um, food more interesting, you know. Does that sort of creative endeavor, like, hey, I've got this ingredient, let's figure out a way to make yeah. this like so fucking delicious. Does that scratch the same creative itch for your like other artistic avenues? I know you paint. You mentioned writing a bit when yeah. you were younger. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I've always liked writing, and I don't, I don't know why. Um, I mean, it might predate my interest in food. I, I, I can't remember, um, particularly playwriting. I mean, and really? I've only produced one play, um, but I've like I don't know, plenty written, and um, uh, they're all weird and wacky. And they have like, if I, if I was to try and stick my my food life and my play life together, it'd be absolutely bizarre. <laughs> uh, and even though I did my my PhD on that, I did it on uh, staging food, and I tried to bring the, those two worlds together. Whoa. And I put on a play about Irish food that was very surreal and weird and and uh, and wonderful. Um, and uh, that was that was on in 20, uh, 2019. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it was it was um, it was interesting to try and put those those two things um, those two those two things together. But it's still I still have a yearning inside me to like. To, to write more uh, and outside my food writing I mean I have the, the the books and I have a column in the the new weekly column in the newspaper but for me it's not that I I, I, I think that that li- that writing is less real but it, it's just it doesn't fulfill the itch in terms of wanting to write a work of fiction or mm. wanting to write and I'm always trying to tip away on that but I suppose it's always a, a part-time thing you know it's it's kind of like something you do when you're uh, um when you're not working, but at the same time, like it doesn't seem to go away in the sense I haven't, I mean, I've been working for the last 10 or 12 days because we're short staffed and I don't think I've written much except my column, which I write on my phone. Um, and um, so it's, uh, yeah, maybe I'll, on Sunday, I'll sit back down again and get some headspace and that, but uh, it's, uh, it's something that's there and yeah. It's hard to explain. I understand that, though. I'm, I'm on, like, where you're at. I'm on, like, step one or two in, in the writing world, and I'm doing freelance. Yeah. And I'll write about food. And everything that's, like, sexy about the writing to me, editors come in, and they just chop the shit out yeah. of that. And they're like, no, we don't want this. We just don't like- I just, I, I actually just gave, I just send my writing over to the editors now. And at the beginning, they used to say, oh, you have to take out this sentence. Could you change that sentence? And now I just go, just change whatever you need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just go, it's grand. Like, yeah. you don't need to send it back to me. And then when I read it, I go, I don't remember writing that sentence. Yeah. It's a weird <laughs> sentence. And I actually don't, like, I, the, the line between, even with this book, like, I mean, there was sentences going, this, this sentence should be in, I mean, blah, blah, blah. And, and then sometimes you, you'd look at it and you go, God, yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's like a, writing a book at a, uh, or writing for, for, for publications, it's, it's like, it's, it's more of a collaborative affair, you know? It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, you need to say this or... Um, you forgot to say this, or this line sounds better, or this is uh, this isn't um, functional, or you don't need to say this now, or you've only got three hundred words and you've, you're fifty over. Can you delete fifty? And so it's very, 
utilitarian, you know, and it's uh, it serves a purpose and it's um, it's a it, it's a good tr- for me. It's a good training exercise because yeah. often the biggest difficulty when you want to write creatively is. Um, is sitting down and then actually not having any structure or you're just sitting down and you're you're trying to get into it but it's um it's always good to um uh, to have a deadline you know and that's what compels like and trains me to to write because when you have to write your food article every single week on a different subject and you've been doing it for eight years like you're, you start to run out of subjects you're going like how much longer can I write a seasonal column <laughs> 52 weeks of the year and like I run out of like I start to repeat myself and then when you're you're researching the thing and you, you end up like you're, you, you end up you're finding articles that you wrote you go I think I'll write about plums this week and you go plums in Ireland and you go oh this is an interesting article you go, oh I wrote that uh, and it's uh, yeah and you're like going fuck where do I need to get some new information so uh, I'm sure I'll get let go someday and someday I'm sure at the end of the go you're done and uh, they're like, I get that phone call in the middle of the night and uh, uh, the friend who wrote a food call in before me and she said you know someday that call will come and don't get don't be sad it's not personal it's just just uh, they're, they're, they're moving on you know and that's that's the way it is you know sometimes our heroes kind of bleed through too when we write and I think about that all the time that like a lot of the people who kind of have like a cult following now when they were writing or playing music or doing whatever at the time, like they were piss poor and doing heroin and uh, some of them ended up like putting a bullet in their head. So yeah. it's like they weren't doing so well at the time. So yes. probably publishers like weren't so happy with them as well. So No, 100%. Yeah. It is a difficult... Uh, and because I suppose the, um, uh, the, the industry is, is uh, much more professionalized now and yeah. it's, it's more difficult to get into and so it is it, it's a challenge you know and it's um but it's not to say i mean uh i think anyone who writes create uh, creatively i mean uh a publication is uh, is um a bonus for me you know i mean if i can finish things and and i have them finished and so i i mean i've 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 way more things unfinished than finished but if i can finish things and even if that nothing happens i mean uh, like uh, for me that's 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 good enough for the moment you know and uh, i think it's important to to um to try and do that you know and uh uh give yourself deadlines and, and apply for stupid competitions that want a short story of 2,500 words and just do it. Yeah. And whether, like it's, and then it's just, just to, 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 to try and, to try and um, challenge yourself, you know? And uh, I think that's the bet that for me, that's, that's how I finish things. Cause otherwise they just go on forever and they just blend into something else and I get distracted. And, uh, and I don't know why that's why playwriting has, has always been the easiest thing for me to, to write and uh, with characters and um, the I enjoy it and um, and um, that's and hopefully yeah well someday we'll get another play on you know take a left turn with topics uh, the dairy here is like some of the best dairy I've had in my life uh, I can go to just like our local grocery in the states and buy butter and it's kind of anemic looking it's a little yeah. more white than it is yellow uh, why is the dairy so good in Ireland. It's, uh, I suppose it's down to the, the awful weather we have, <laughs> and uh, we have so much grass. Um, and yeah, we, like, with, uh, we have a great tradition of, of making butter, and, um, and we, I think a lot of time we take it for granted, you know? But I mean, rain makes good grass, good grass. Uh, produces good uh, good dairy and it produces good dairy it produces good cheese we have an amazing uh, farmhouse cheese movement about 800 cheeses I think a lot anyway um, and um, uh, and that's that's always um, um, always growing and so it is that particular um, time and space of um, of of Ireland, you know the geography of Ireland, and that's the same when you when I go to Spain and you get the butter, and it's like I don't know what it is, but it ain't butter, and uh, <laughs> it's it's and it's I think a lot of time it comes down to whether the country's too hot or whether it's say in the states whether the animals are yeah. corn fed or like, and so it changes all that makeup, and because a lot of the states that that rear all the cattle have no grass. And, and I think it's the grass that makes that um, butter, gives butter that, that, uh, that unique uh, taste. And I think actually Kerrygold, who, who make the, the butter, make most of the world's butter in Ireland, um, they, they sell more abroad than they do in Ireland. So in, 
Germany and the US, they sell like absolute tons. Really? Yeah, and I think they're, I think they're, if they're not already, uh, they're definitely, I think they're definitely a billion dollar company. I think they might, they might be the, one of the biggest, biggest companies, biggest Irish companies in the world. Um, and, and that's a good and a bad thing because it's a good thing because, okay, we're, we are known for butter. And, um, but at the same time, sometimes when you put all your eggs into the one basket and then all of a sudden you, we stopped making sugar in the 80s because we thought, oh, well, we joined the EU, we can buy sugar from someone else. Let's just stop the sugar industry. But I think what, what has happened with the, the war in the Ukraine is that it showed us again. And, and, this, and this, has hap- this happened during COVID as well. Is that we like we have turned each each country into a kind of monoculture, yep. you know? And so we're we're butter and beef, and um, um, uh, Denmark is pigs, and and even though there are loads of things happening underneath that, the each each country has its its kind of big uh, its big um, food export, you know? And so we we're very deficient on wheat and sugar. Um, fruit and vegetables because we just stopped growing them because it was easier to buy tomatoes from Spain because it was cheaper than trying to grow them here ourselves. Now, that has changed slightly and we have some growers who are engaged, but it's still quite small, you know, and, and it's very difficult to compete with um, uh, quantity, you know. And, and when, when you have potatoes from, I was I remember years ago, I seen this potato, baby potatoes from Israel and they were like, 10 euro a box um so a euro a kilo and there's like 10 euro yeah for for 10 kilo and it's just you um you can't compete with that you know and and so on the one side it's beneficial because of a society who has uh, spends less on food can spend their money elsewhere but at the same time um it uh, it also it also depletes the kind of natural ecosystem of the country and I think we only mm. have 30 maybe 30 or 40 commercial grow, vegetable growers left in the country and like if I could, we have 5 million people and I'm sure it's the same in the states where the farms got bigger um, and become more specialised and that's what they just grow corn yeah, soy yeah. there you go and, and then the problem is then all the uh, all the soil gets destroyed, yeah. and then they just leave that place. And like so, th- that also is a is a, is a, is questionable for Ireland. And I was just talking to a farmer a couple of days ago, and, and he was saying that we're going to have to um, like the, the war in Ukraine has brought the focus again because wheat prices have gone crazy because all of the world's wheat, corn, sunflower. I think eighty percent of it comes from that region mm. that, that goes through the Ukraine and into Russia. And uh, and that's going to just keep on escalating until we sort this out, you know. And but at the same time, maybe like COVID and we what we started with, um, it's like, are we going to learn from it? And mm. when the war ends, are we just going to go back to, oh yeah, sure, looks so we just get the grain from the Ukraines from the Ukraines again? And that that's that's the thing I worry about. It's often how we do things, huh? Yeah, one hundred percent. We we seem to be incapable of learning from history. Uh, yeah. And it's, uh, we were just talking last night, they going like there's a weird way that the situation in the Ukraine mirrors the situation at the start of World War II, where a country uh, invaded another country and then other countries joined in. And like, are, are, we, are we getting close to that? Where England and uh, France are going, well, do you know what? Uh, let's help them. And how much do we help them? And they're talking about going, getting this, um, uh, disrupting this blockade where all the wheat is in the Black Sea and, like, uh, how does that escalate? And then all of a sudden, yeah, you've got like a load of countries sending rockets at each other. And so it's, it's weird. And, but it's, a, it's, it's almost the same situation. But I mean, I suppose, what do you do? It's, right. um, and it, and it, I suppose it, it affects, it sounds all kind of global and historical, but it affects what we're doing in the restaurant now. And uh, the price of um, wheat is just keeps going up. The price of butter keeps going up because even though we make butter here, butter is dependent on energy and oil and how to make it and all that. So it's just like this uh, knock-on um, thing that um, doesn't seem to go away. And uh, I don't know where we're heading at the moment, this moment in time in term- with food inflation. I don't know. It's uh, I don't know where we're going to be in six months' time and how much more uh, we can um, how much more we can put on the menu uh, in terms of price and if the food just gets it's getting more expensive and we keep putting putting the price up. At what point is it going to break? Right. Because it has to break sometime, you know. And then there's going to be a massive crash, 
uh, and uh, and then what do we do? We start all over again. And then I think we've done that a few times, <laughs> a few times uh, in the last hundred years. So it's it's uh, it's it's this weird cyclical boom bust thing that we're stuck in that we can't seem to get out of. You're really feeling that squeeze now as a yeah, restaurant owner? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's nuts. It's absolutely awful. I actually can't even, I just gave up looking at the prices at the moment <laughs> because it's just, I can't, we can't be revising the menu every week. So I just said, look, we'll leave it for a month or two and see see how how, um, how it goes. But like, I mean, even even our, one of our suppliers just, she said, I'm not going to ring you anymore every time the butter goes up because it just keeps going up. <laughs> and I think the butter is definitely... Uh, it's gone up by fifty percent, and then it's gone up by another twenty-five, and so it's uh, it's a, there's a kind of knock-on effect, you know. Uh, where we're sitting now, am I Anyar? Anyar, yeah. Anyar. Um, what do you want someone to leave here? What do you want them to take from a meal? Like, do you want just walking out the door and just pure like moaning and pleasure? Do you want them to learn something? What do you want that experience to be? I, I think a bit of both. I certainly want them to um, to learn something and, and to get a, an experience of of Ireland and, and food and contemporary Irish food. Um, we give them a little uh, menu that is printed on seeded paper that they can plant uh, that Whoa. chamomile grow out of, and then we also give them this kind of map pen, this kind of pen and ink map of Ireland, um, and it's it's our ten thousand uh, year food culture. And um, uh, we have different sites that are significant in terms of um, Irishness and food, um, but going back to the Neolithic period. And so I suppose I do want them to be educated as well. Like, of course, food is a, is a, um, is a sensory experience. So the, the main thing is to have delicious food, you know? Mm. Uh, but it's also about to learn a little bit more about our, uh, Ireland and Irishness in terms of its food and and to, to get them to think outside the box a bit, you know. Um, for someone traveling here and visiting, what is something that you think or some things that you think that they absolutely have to have uh, either at your place or other places? Um, I mean, it's... I mean, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people, particularly say Americans, uh, come to come to Galway, and they, they're um, the West has that kind of uh, interest for a lot of people, uh, because a lot of people left it in the in the nineteenth century, and it's probably where a lot of um, uh, those people's ancestors are. I think appreciating the beauty of the landscape, whether it's the cliffs of Moher or uh, taking time to go out to the Iron Islands and just that raw physical beauty. Of of um, of Ireland, I think um, appreciating simple things like having some oysters, having a good pint of Guinness, you know, um, um, in a in a small pub in down in County Clare, you know, I mean, I think that's a, it's a that, that's definitely something I would recommend. I mean, any of the restaurants that I've that I've mentioned or that that are in in Galway or in in Ireland that are I suppose really trying to push the boat out on, on, on what Irish food is. Um, I think um, I think to try and experience them, you know, and to, to get a better sense of what Irish food is um, so that when they go home, they can tell other people, you know, mm. I think, and that's what, I mean, that's what we've been doing for, um, um, for 11 years. I mean, people come, there's a lot of word of mouth. And, and, and as I said to you, we got 80 or 90% of our guests are, are American. And um, it's a lot of word of mouth saying people who are uh, here and um, and then two years later, their friends come or, and it's, uh, it's, it's nice. I mean, we have a great spread. It's not only say New York, Boston, uh, with people from Philadelphia um, in yesterday. And then a lot of people from Colorado and, um, uh, Minnesota and just uh, like everywhere, Seattle, San Francisco, the odd person from Texas. Yeah. We don't get a lot of Texans. <laughs> we had once had one Texan and I knew he was Texan because he had a massive hat on nice. and he was sitting just there on table six. And this was when the time when Trump was in office and I was like, oh my God, I don't want to do this. I want to go down and talk to him about Texas and Trump. And, and if I went down to him with the snacks and, and he goes, I'm not a Trump supporter. And I was like, <laughs> thank you. I was like, I wasn't going to ask you, but I, I was like, yeah. Uh, his daughter was was going to come to college here and that and so yeah it's um it's uh, it's really nice uh 
for for me and we had a couple uh, just on that table last night from from New York and yeah it, it was it, they were saying that it was uh, the best meal they had in Ireland and that it, it gave them um, a kind of new insight on on Irish food and the appreciation of Irish food and that's the kind of I suppose the the regular. Um, the regular feedback, you know, and we had four Canadians on the table that we're sitting at, and and again the same thing. They just had a really nice experience, and um, that is sensory and but also uh, kind of comforting and um, emotional at the same time. You talked to everybody. Yeah, I talked to well, and they were actually asking me. But the nights I'm here, and at the moment I'm here every night, but I'm not supposed to be here every night. I do have two children, and and that's something I learned during COVID. If, if I learned anything, was that um, I was I jokingly say I realised I was a father during COVID because I had kind of two kids, but I had just been working in restaurants, and then I just kind of go, oh yeah, there's the children. Oh yeah, there's the children. Uh, dropping the school. Oh, there's the children. Um, so I do try and. I get a bit of a better work-life balance now. It doesn't always work out when you're short-staffed and I'm working for 14 days in a row. But at the same time, uh, when, when I'm here, I, I, I make sure that I talk to every single table and give them two or three minutes at the beginning or the end. And for me, it's it's about, I mean, Ireland, we've always been great at hospitality and it's the difference we can make. Uh, the, the, the food I always say to, and I said this to the guys last night from New York. I said, like the food at any Michelin star restaurant, the food is good. I mean, because that's the standard. You get nice food, but sometimes you don't get a nice experience because right. sometimes the restaurant has no personality or it's very cold or informal, and the food is exceptionally good. But you don't get a sense of who the people are behind this restaurant. And so I, my, the only difference I can make, and I say to the staff, is that if I'm not here, someone else goes down and talks to them. Is that it's it's our personality. That we can that we can communicate, and so if I go down and talk to them and say, "Oh, well, guys, where are you from?" and they're from uh, Ireland, or from America, they're from England, or Sweden, or um, uh, Finland, and then try and engage with them on some level and uh, and have a small chat, and then uh, um, and then they go, but they, they they take a bit of that away with them, you know, and I think that's sometimes that that's what. Um, um, that's what we're missing with food, you know, and and even like, when you go and eat in someone's house when you're traveling, you know, and I think Anthony Bourdain said this, like when you go to Palestine or you go to anywhere, you sit with people and you eat food. It's, it's also the personality of those people. Mm -hmm. And it's the best way to like make friends, you know, when you eat with people and you, you cook something and you talk about why you cooked it. And, and so for me, there's, there's an important, um, that's an important aspect of, of something that we have to do. And, it's um, it, it's something that I that I actually think is just as important as the food. We have to get the food right. But we have to make sure we we I like I, we chat to every single person. And I think we did we have twenty seats and we do about thirty people, um, maybe thirty three. We have twenty six in tonight. And I, I like I we can I can tell you there was four Canadians here last night. It was two Irish people, New York, I think, uh, L A, um, and and I. I'd be able to remember roughly um, who was there and who we met. And it's nice then because then I feel I'm not just cooking every day because that's what I suppose what, what breaks you down is repetition, you know, and you're doing the same thing, the same thing. And it's, it's the, it's the interesting thing where you're just doing the same thing and someone says to you, oh, do you know what? I, I, thought, I thought that dish was amazing. And in my head, I'm going, I fucking hate that dish. <laughs> I'm going like, uh, and uh, these things you don't say, you go, fucking hell, I can't wait till that dish is off the menu. And they're going, I love that dish. And then it gives you a renewed kind of satisfaction. You go back and go, okay, well, maybe this, some people are appreciating this dish. Because everyone's having the dish for the first time, but you might be plating it for the thousandth time, you know? And I saw an interview once with Marco Pierre White, who, could, who notoriously could be harsh and critical of food that he thought was not cooked to his standard. Uh, and it was actually kind of surprising to hear him say that he cared more about the experience and the place than the actual food itself. Mm. So... Yeah, no, I, I think it is it is important, you know. I mean, the food, food can be average, but um, um, personality and experience can elevate that food. Mm. You know, but if the food is exceptional, and the experience is average, it can it can drag that it can drag that food down and and absolutely destroy it. Yeah, I mean, it's like you say you rec you recommend going to a pub. I mean, yeah, you're you're not going to get. Michelin starred food, but there's but something you're have about a that. Wonderful fish and chips 
by the coast with a pint of Guinness. You know, it's and that smell of like years of beer soaked into the wood. There's a dog licking yeah, my face 100%. right now. Really my dog is uh, attacking you. He's trying to eat the microphone. Um, yeah, there's just something about that sort of like magical feeling in a place. Yeah, and there's loads of those places in Ireland. A bowl of chowder, like a, um, they're like there's just. Yeah, it, it, there's so many uh, examples and there's so many uh, restaurants doing or pubs doing great food like that. And that's that's the thing people should explore. I mean, get off the beaten track. I always say to people, yeah, go to Galway or but try and find um, try and find something that you didn't read about in a, in a guidebook or that you just stumble across. And they're the ones that create the create the experiences. I'll wrap in a minute here because I think. Uh Sam wants to go for a walk. Someone needs some attention. Yeah, yeah, he does. Um, yeah, he does this. He's, yeah, but he's he seems content. Well, I'm wondering what's next for you because I mean, three very successful restaurants, books, talks. Um, do you think about the future? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'll keep doing what I do, and um, I'll keep refining an ear. I mean, my our goal in an ear is to try and get that elusive second star. I mean, how you get it, I don't know. You just have to keep on refining and someday someone comes along and says you're there. Um, uh, I still want to write and I, f I feel like my life will not be complete unless I get that work of fiction out. And also the plays um, that, I've, that I've written. I'm chatting to a director about trying to get this play on that, I, that I've written. Um, and it's a, it's a very long, slow process. And I think in an age where we want everything to be so quick, um, it's like writing really slows you down. Like when you like when you're when you're talking to someone, they go, Do you know, what? yeah, let's meet up in three months. And we'll have a chat about it. You know, it's everything is just so much slower, and I, I think that's it's it's not a bad thing, you know. And um, I'm, I've I've a few books in the in the pipeline. I mean. Uh, that I, one a fish book I wrote over COVID that doesn't have a publisher at oh. the moment and it's about ninety percent finished and have a book another Spanish book um, that I'm just kind of tipping away on and I mean sometimes I write because I want to write and sometimes I write because a publisher asks me do you want to write this book so um, it's kind of like a balance between those two things you know it's and I think you need both of those sides of writing you need the writing that's for yourself and then you also need the writing where someone says look can you do this article and because I think both of them kind of feed off each other and they, they kind of assist you, you know. Well, uh, this was really a pleasure. Uh, thank thank you. you for the time. No, I know pleasure, you're super pleasure. busy, so it's cool to get to sit and chat with you. Cool, thank you. Cheers. All right, Voyagers, that is a wrap on episode 273. Tomorrow morning, we are leaving Galway and it is off to Dublin for a couple of days. I will hopefully be recording there. And then a new country. Croatia. So you'll be hearing from me from there. For now, hit subscribe, like, follow, all that good stuff. And as always, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very soon.